Hey there, friends. It's Ellen Weatherford. And Christian Weatherford. And we're here with Just the Zoo of Us, your favorite animal review podcast, where we take your favorite animals and rate them out of 10 in the categories of effectiveness, ingenuity, and aesthetics. We're not zoological experts, but we try our best to get the most trustworthy resources we can. Yes. Sorry for being a little behind on our release schedule this week, but I promise it is only because we wanted to give you the best episode possible. And I feel like feel like we're going to deliver. Yes. This feels like a good one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Don't Bef- worry, we're not going to cyberpunk you. Cyberpunk? <laughs> Where we delay the release and still... <laughs> <laughs> and still what, Christian? Have problem. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're not going to cyberpunk you. You're not getting uh, Ashton Kutcher cyberpunked. <laughs> For the record, I love playing Cyberpunk. You've probably played 800 hours of that game. Yep, and when that DLC releases in 20 years, I'll play it again. (laughs) By the time it comes out, it'll actually be 2077. (laughs) It'll just be Cyberpunk now. (laughs) So this is an animal podcast. Yeah, Uh, this is about animals. I promise we're not going to talk about video games the whole time. That was just our little moment. mm -hmm. Um, Before we dive into our animals this week, I do have a really really cool follow-up of sorts okay and this reaches all the way back over a hundred episodes ago Mm. to episode 27 where i talked about the sentry dragonfly which was at the suggestion of a listener who later on was a guest on our Naked Mole Rat episode, mm. uh, Benjamin Lancer, who studies these dragonflies, specifically their brains. Yes. And a lot of that episode, I talked about the research that Benjamin does on these dragonflies' brains because it is incredibly fascinating. Mm-hmm. The ways that they're able to track the prey that they're hunting, and they have this like laser focus system that they're able to like completely block out the rest of the world except for what they're tracking, and they're able to like switch that focus around depending on what's going on around them it's incredible it's really cool go back and listen to that episode if that sounds cool but benjamin sent me a message the other day and benjamin said hey ellen so you remember way back when just the zoo of us did a dragonfly episode i don't remember exactly what was said but at one point christian was questioning how dragonflies can both be attending to one thing at a time but also able to notice something else well i was interested too so i designed some experiments to look at that specifically and they've just been published well that's awesome yeah so i i read the paper it's mm-hmm. up in nature i did my best to understand it y'all it's insect neuroscience mm-hmm. so most of it was high above my level of understanding but the gist of it seemed to be that dragonflies can switch focus between targets as long as they're within the same hemisphere of their vision mm. so if it's if both targets are like on their upper half of their vision then they can switch between them or if both are on the lower half of their vision they can switch between them but not if they're on different hemispheres okay so if something's above them they can't switch focus to something below them Mm. and vice versa but they can if they're both kind of somewhat close to each other okay yeah but that was only one of the findings benjamin said it does look like they have to focus on one side at the detriment of the other which is opposite to the findings in people where your attention is independent of its location in your vision Mm. there's about to be a more sort of like public like general audiences friendly write-up of the study uh, that i'm going to provide a link to as soon as it's up benjamin said it's going to be up later this week 
um, as of us recording this. So once that link is available, I'll put it in the episode description and you can scroll down and check it out. It is really, really interesting. I felt like that was so cool that like we we're constantly having these like conversations where we ask a question and we're like, I don't know, that would be a cool thing to find out, you right. know, like, oh, maybe somebody should research this. Wouldn't that be cool? And it happened. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Which I think is just like the neatest thing. Uh, so it was really exciting. I was so glad Benjamin reached out. I'm going to for sure provide links to all that because just so excited about it. So. <laughs> feels Love. like unlocking an achievement of some sort. It does. It feels like a milestone for us, I think. <laughs> I feel like we contributed, you know? Yes. We helped. We had our hand on the ball of science <laughs> in some way, in some tangible way, which is very exciting. So mm. that was my little follow-up. I just thought it was so sweet. That is very nice. All right. So I believe I go first this week. That sounds right. And... I have an animal that I'm so excited to talk about because it's so great. Mm-hmm. This is Pallas's cat, also known as the Manul. The scientific name is Otocolobus Manul. So Manul is the species name. And that name is from Mongolian. So their, mm. their Mongolian name is Manul. The species was submitted by Robin Berry and Pastor Julia Humanic. I hope I pronounced your name correctly. So thank y'all for for suggesting this cat. I am, I have been aware of it because it has achieved somewhat of a meme status. Right. It has been floating around on the internet. It's been on my radar. Uh, so I was really excited to get to learn more about it because they're really fascinating. I'm getting my information from the Palace's Cat International Conservation Alliance website, which is at palacecats.org, Smithsonian's National Zoo, the International Society for Endangered Cats at wildcatconservation.org, and a documentary titled Wildlife Instincts, Palace's Cat, Master of the Plains. Hmm. And this documentary was produced by NHK, which is the Japan Broadcasting Corporation. It is a really great 50-minute documentary. So it's not that long. You can sit down and watch it in one sitting. Mm-hmm. All about the palace's cat, led by some Mongolian biologists who go out and put a radio collar on a palace's cat and then track her and her kittens throughout like a whole year. So you get to see the kittens grow up through the seasons. Aww. It's just a really, really great documentary. And the best part about it is that you can watch it for free on YouTube. Perfect. Yeah. So uh, I'll have a link to that in the description, too, because I do think everyone should go watch it. It's a great documentary. I I loved it. So if you're not familiar with Palace's cat, they are a wild cat, Mm -hmm. but they're not a big cat. Most species of wild cats are not big cats. These are only about the size of a plain old house cat. Like our house cat? Yeah, it would be about the size of our cat. Okay. Well, our cat is a bit little on the big side, so these would be a little smaller than him, actually. Okay. These tend to be between 5 and 10 pounds. Ah. Sorry, I did not include a metric conversion for metric listeners, but if you know about cats, it's that. That's how big they are. (laughs) You can find them in grasslands and rocky steppes. We talked about steppes pretty recently with the Saiga. It's like a big, flat grassland. Yes. Specifically, though, at high elevations. So you're not going to find them down in the like low deserts and stuff. These are more up high in the mountains. Mm-hmm. Uh, and their range is throughout Central Asia. So they go as far north as Russia and as far south as India. Wow. And then kind of all across Central Asia in these high elevation plains. They're in the taxonomic family Felidae. They're a cat. Normally, I talk a little bit more about the taxonomic family, but we've got a lot of ground to cover today, so I'm not going to dwell too much on it. It's a cat. You all know what cats are. Uh, To get right into our ratings 
for the palace's cat. If this is your first time listening, we rate animals out of 10 in categories. The first is effectiveness. And this is how well the animal's body is adapted physically to doing the things it's trying to do, achieving its goals, reaching its dreams, (laughs) living its best life. I do give the palace's cat an 8 out of 10 for effectiveness. That's pretty good. It's pretty good. So first of all, the first thing you notice when you look at palaces, I don't know if you say the palace's cat or just palace's cat. Well, is this a good time to talk about that name? Sure, yeah. What does it mean? Why is it? It's named after a Russian zoologist who okay. was the first person to like to document the species. Okay. But the first thing you notice when you look at this cat is that it has a very unusual face. Its head and face is super different from like most other cats. Okay. Which reads to the human eye as a grumpy sort of expression. <laughs> so what's going on is that they have these big eyes, but a very sort of like flat, shallow forehead. Mm. So it's weird. The head is big and wide, but like their eyes are really close to the top of their head and their ears are also <laughs> along the sides of the cat's face. So usually, if you're like drawing a cat, you'd probably draw a circle with two triangles poking out of mm-hmm, the top. Mm-hmm. In this cat, the triangles are pointing to the sides instead of up at the sky. Mm-hmm. So it gives the cat a very distinct face. It's almost human-like. Oh, no. Which is a little unsettling in some contexts. <laughs> <laughs> but what's cool about this is that their unusual head shape and facial structure actually serves a very specific purpose. So their flat forehead and ears being positioned very low on their head so they're not sticking up, it lets the cat completely flatten its body down on the ground, and then it can peek out from cover (laughs) so if it's like hiding behind a rock or a bush or it's just hiding in the grass it can peek and see the things it's looking at without prey seeing them okay so they're like not exposing enough of their body for prey to get a good look at them or like reveal their silhouette right because if they had their ears pointing up at the top like other cats Boom, there's two triangles pointing up at the sky. You know, you see that. That's a cat, right? Yeah. What else could it be? Yeah, but they don't have that. (laughs) Instead, it's just like, oh, is that a little lump that's poking out? Not sure. You can't really tell that it's a cat from far away. This reminds me a little bit of how hippos have their eyes and their nostrils positioned so that they can poke out just the eyes and the nostrils out of the water and not expose much of their body. Right. This reminds me of that. Mm -hmm. So they're able to hide really, really well because of that unusual face structure. So next time you see a picture of a palace cat that looks all wonky in the face, just know that they're that way for a reason. (laughs) It's on purpose. It is. It's on purpose. (laughs) So even in these flat grasslands, right, with just kind of like some little rocks on the ground here and there, uh, they can press their body flat on the ground and just become like as flat as possible. So they do that sort of sploot thing (laughs) where they like lay down and just completely are pressing down against the ground to like splay out and flatten themselves completely uh, and make themselves look like a rock, basically. They just stay stay there and stay super still and it helps them both sneak up on prey and also hide from predators because their biggest predator is eagles. which are much bigger than they are. Oh, yeah, I was about to say, like they got to be fairly sizable eagles. They are. They're golden eagles, which are very large. And these are not huge cats. Right. So eagles will gobble them up. Yeah. (laughs) But they're really good at hiding from eagles. So they're they're doing okay. Mm -hmm. 
next sort of tool they have in their kit is their fur. They have the densest fur of any cat. Not quite as dense as like the sea otter, which has the densest fur of like any mammal. But uh, the palace cat is rocking 9,000 hairs per square centimeter. I bet that's so soft. It's the softest. (laughs) From what I've heard, I've never touched one and I never will, but I've heard it is incredibly soft. Mm -hmm. So 9,000 hairs per square centimeter. And this helps insulate their body from the cold because it gets really, really cold where they live. Like Mm -hmm. this is way up between 5,000 and 15,000 feet up in, um, you know, Mongolia and Russia, and it gets really, really snowy there. So they they have to protect themselves from the cold. Yeah. But their coat also changes seasonally. So in the summer, when it gets really warm, they shed that long, dense fur and have kind of a more short, thin summer coat. And it changes colors, too, to right. blend in with the landscape, like a lot of other mammals do. Mm-hmm. Pretty much always you're going to get like shades of gray and tan because they need to blend in with the rocks. Yeah. And then they have stripes and spots like a tabby cat that oh. like break up their silhouette. When you see one in a, if there's like a picture of one hiding in the rocks, you will not find it. This mm. thing is so hard to find. I do like these challenges though. You like these? <laughs> these pop up on my Twitter constantly of like, it's always like find that lizard, find that leopard. Mm-hmm. I, for the life of me, cannot find them I ever. I those. I can't do it. I have to look into the comments and cheat. <laughs> But you know what? You're more patient than I am. You can actually focus on stuff like that. Maybe. I'm easily discouraged. (laughs) If I were left to my own devices and if I was being like hunted by a leopard, it would kill me instantly because I I would not clock that leopard (laughs) at all. (laughs) So yeah, their their fur is very well suited to their environment. Helps them camouflage, keeps them warm. It's great fur. Something interesting that adds to like the humanness of their face Mm -hmm. is their pupils. They have round pupils. Oh, instead of different. Yeah, instead of vertical slit pupils, like other small cats. So small cats you typically associate with those vertical slit pupils, which are thought to help ambush predators that are close to the ground, like Mm. small cats, snakes, like predators that typically live very close to the ground and are ambush predators. Mm -hmm. They'll have those. And it's thought to be because it's supposed to help them better judge the distance between them and their prey so that they know when the right time is to strike, specifically when the prey is above them. So if they're laying flat on the ground, the prey is going to be above them and they should they need to be able to tell how close it is to them so they know if it's a good time to strike or not. And then round pupils are typically seen in big cats like lions and tigers because they're still on the ground, but they're huge. So they're like much higher up off the ground. I've been sitting here for the past minute trying to recall what tiger pupils look like. They're round. Yeah. Tiger so. pupils are round. <laughs> um, and human pupils obviously are round also. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and we are taller predators than True. than a small cat would be. So it's really not clear why Palace's cat has round pupils hmm. because it has the same hunting style and strategy as other small cats. It's kind of a mystery. Maybe they used to be big. Maybe they did. Maybe <laughs> they used to be big cats and then over time they got smaller and just kept the pupils. Something. Yeah, something. Uh, it does give their face a much more human quality to it yes. though, which is very unsettling. I think that's why it gets a little bit into uncanny valley territory sometimes because of the the humanness of the eyes. It's mm. a little it's a little creepy. Speaking of their eyes though, their eyes are protected by a third eyelid. Oh. It's called the nictitating membrane. Okay, we we see this in Usually not mammals, but... Yeah, I think the emu has it. Um, Camels have them. So, I mean, 
what you see this in is mostly animals that live in dusty environments. Oh, okay. It's like animals that live in some sort of sandy, dusty place. It's to protect their eyes from the dust and also Mm. the wind. You know, like in the winter, it gets really cold and really windy. So they need to be able to have their eyeball be protected so gunk isn't flying directly into their eyeball, but they can still see through it. It's a a transparent membrane. And camels are a double threat with those lush eyelashes we talked about. They are 100% covered in the eye department. (laughs) They they got Fort Knox around their eyes. Ain't nobody getting in. Nothing. So the only like deductions that I gave the palace's cat is that number one, they're highly specialized for a pretty specific set of like mm-hmm. ecological circumstances, right? Like it needs to be high altitude. It needs to be arid. It needs to be really cold. They need a lot of rock coverage. They need grass. They they need a lot of like sort of specific circumstances to live in. Um, So that kind of means they're out of luck if they do lose access to that habitat, which is becoming more and more of a problem for them Mm. in our era of industrialization and stuff. They are starting to lose access to their habitat that they need. So being a specialist does not help them there. Right. And that brings us to ingenuity, which for our podcast is behavioral things. So ways that the animal is actively doing things to give itself an advantage or solve problems or anything like that. I'm giving Palace's cat an eight out of 10. That's also pretty good. It's also pretty good. Yeah. So first of all, they're ambush predators. So their their bulky coat and their stubby legs don't exactly make them great uh, at chasing over long distances. Mm-hmm. If you can imagine them kind of like waddling and <laughs> trailing, you know, all this fur behind them and stuff. It's not. Imagine like a Persian cat. Mm. They're a little bit like a Persian cat. Apparently, the, the zoologist that initially documented them erroneously believed them to be an ancestor of the Persian cat. Oh, they're not. But they just kind of look like them. Hmm. So instead, they rely more heavily on stealth and patience to hunt their prey they specialize in small mammals so when they see a small mammal like a rodent or something on the ground they'll they'll sneak up to it really really slowly they do that cat thing where they'll kind of like take a couple steps and then freeze and then take a couple more steps and then freeze Mm -hmm. they do something really interesting where they'll sneak up to a critter's burrow and they lie in wait at the entrance for the critter to come out of the burrow and then they pounce like they're spawn camping is what they're doing. Like they're <laughs> waiting at the exit for the critter to to come out. And then they're like, thank you very much. And they'll sit there all day and do that. <laughs> Report palace cat, please. <laughs> Report for griefing. <laughs> the cats in the documentary. Okay. They were doing something very interesting with their tail. Long tail? Right? It is a long tail. Okay. Yeah. Okay. But the cats in the documentary were doing something just so fascinating. When they were stalking prey, it was like a bird or a vole or something like that. They would creep up and twitch their tail. So I didn't know this, but that's a distraction. So they're trying to like alert the prey to like somewhere else that's not where they are. Mm. So that the prey's not looking at them. It's looking like a foot or so to their side. So it's supposed to like distract the prey and help them sneak up on it more easily. But another thing they were doing that I, this is diabolical. This is devious. <laughs> they would flick their tail to frighten the prey, like to spook it and send it retreating and watch where it entered its burrow to get the location of the burrow entrance so that they could spawn camp it. <laughs> <laughs> so they would like scare off the prey on purpose and then be like, ah, 
that's where your house is. <laughs> that's stone cold, I think. You know, bluffing to right. to get intel, I guess, on your prey. But it's also a bit of a gamble, right? Like you're you're passing up a a small meal for the opportunity for a perhaps larger meal. Yeah, but they did get the larger meal. Yeah, because then they got to know where the burrow was. Yeah. Um, this might break your heart a little bit. Half of the palace's cat's diet is the pika. Oh, no. I know. Uh, you talked about the North American pika in episode 66. Yes. These are obviously different pikas than the ones we have here, but they're like related. But yeah, that is up to half of their diet is pikas. That makes sense. Now that I think about the kind of environment we were talking about with those two. Mm-hmm. Yeah. These cats are one of my favorite words. I love this word, crepuscular. Oh, yeah. Which means that they are the most active at dusk and dawn. So they're avoiding the hottest part of the day, but they're also not necessarily like running around at midnight. And when they're not actively hunting, they do spend their time curled up in crevices or in little caves or burrows that have already been dug by some other animal. So they do spend their time hiding, which a lot of this documentary was these biologists hiking through the rocks and like shining their flashlights into little rock crevices and stuff to find the cat, (laughs) which I had to get your attention to see this because there's this moment in this documentary where the biologists that are like leading the documentary crew around, they finally find one of these cats hiding in a rock crevice. And so they shine their flashlight down into this little hidey hole and light up the face of this cat who was very visibly not ready to be woken up like it was very much looking like their alarm was about to go off in like 15 minutes (laughs) and they're not gonna have time to go back to sleep just the death glare that the cat was giving directly into the camera was just like (laughs) you could feel it it was like staring daggers into the camera and the camera just like zoomed in on it and the cat looked (laughs) so mad it was like such a like the office moment (laughs) this cat was like visibly irate oh my gosh i was laughing Mm -hmm. i thought it was so funny just it's stellar cinematography that they just did like a cold zoom in on this cat (laughs) that was like are you serious can you not so that was that was hilarious to me i love it Okay, have sort of a, an ingenuity grand finale. Oh, boy. This is my favorite thing in the world. Okay, so first of all, when it is chilly, Palace's cats wrap their tail mm-hmm. around their body Ooh. like a big fluffy scarf. And that's not all. Brace yourself. Mm-hmm. They sit with their paws on their tail Ooh. so that their toe beans do not get chilled <laughs> <laughs> on the snow. <laughs> Yeah. No, they don't want chili beans. <laughs> it's the sweetest little thing. Their tail is like they lay their tail down on the ground and then they put their little paws just ever so gingerly right on top of their little tail and just like sit all prim and proper. How sweet. Oh my God. It's so good. <laughs> If you want to see this in action, um, the cutest video in the entire universe, look it up. There's all sorts of videos by uh, Roman Pauloff on his YouTube channel, which is called Manualization. And he posts all of these adorable videos that he takes of Palace's cats. 
Uh, the ones that I saw specifically were taken at Novosibirsk Zoo in Russia. Mm. I'm obsessed. It's so good. It's great. It does sound very nice. It's amazing. Best thing I've ever seen. Uh, which brings us to aesthetics, of course, for Palace's uh-huh. cat. And I'm giving it two scores. Oh. I'm giving it one score for... <laughs> For in the winter. Oh. And one score for in the summer. Okay. Because they look like entirely different creatures. Hmm. I mentioned that their coat sheds with the seasons. So in the winter, this is a loaf of cat. They are like <laughs> so incredibly round. It's like a tube of cat. Oh. Their their fur is so luxuriously long and wispy and soft. They just look like a little cloud. Cutest thing. And it also really fills out their face. When it bulks them up like that, it really kind of makes them look a little bit more cat-like, I think. Mm -hmm. So just, you know, long silver fur. I didn't mention this earlier, but they are rocking frosted tips. Uh, Huh. Yeah. They got like the the ends of their fur, like white, which is really nice. So in the winter, this is like if corgi, but cat. Mm -hmm. So good. Excellent. 10 out of 10. No notes. In the summer... It's a different story. The long, beautiful, luxurious coat falls out, leaving a much shorter, usually kind of a more brown, like tan and brown, ochre-colored sort of coat. Uh, it, it's, it's a little bit more challenging to look at. It really makes their head look more comically wide than it, like, oh. than it does in the winter because it makes their body look, thinner which makes their head look bigger and it just their facial proportions look more exaggerated and makes them look more human and it it doesn't work for me i'm giving them a six out of ten in the summer okay because of the weird human face that's a little strange approaching khajiit territory it is it's getting there (laughs) (laughs) a khajiit but maybe like in oblivion when the graphics weren't that good (laughs) When they really hadn't gotten the hang of, like, napping human faces. (laughs) So the documentary that I watched, I mentioned that it films these palaces cats, like, over the seasons. So you see them in their different stages, Mm -hmm. right? And some of the footage involved the mama cat, basically, in that, like, molting stage where she had patches of her winter coat and patches of her summer coat Mm -hmm. all at the same time. Mm -hmm. It was like... (laughs) It was a mess. It was a disaster. I was like, girl, get your act together. What are you doing? You cannot go out like this. <laughs> I was like, ma'am. She looked like uh, me when I go to CVS at 1 a.m. to get ice cream. <laughs> this poor thing. Now, I will say the kittens. Palace's kittens. They're so cute. They look fake. Like, mm. they don't look like they're real. They look like those, like, pictures of stuffed animals that get passed around on the internet from time to time and passed off as some sort of animal that right. isn't really what it is. Right. Um, they look fake, but they're just so cute. They have these big old paws and big old ears, and they're just little, they're just little walking clouds. Their genus name, by the way, Otocolobus, comes from Greek, and it means ugly-eared. That's just rude. Right? Like, that's unfair, <laughs> I think. Because the ears are not the ugly thing about them. Mm-hmm. If you could even say that anything is ugly about them, it's not their ears. The ears are, like, great. No notes on the ears. The eyes are the problem, hmm. I think. So, okay. I wouldn't have named them that. 
I should also say that they're grumpy expression because that's what everybody calls them, like real life grumpy cat. Well, I mean, grumpy cat was in real life, but they have a very grumpy expression. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, that's not a facade. They are extremely cranky. They do not oh. wish to be perceived. They do not wish to be interacted with. Every single like interview with a zookeeper or something that I saw like that was talking about them was like, they are mean. They are super mean. They will hiss and scratch and bite. They do not like to be handled or interacted with. They're extremely hostile. Do not interact with them unless you are a trained professional. How are you going to look like that? And then <laughs> I know that's the problem <laughs> is that they're so clearly like they have a lot of attitude and hostility in a very, very tiny, adorable body, <laughs> which is not working for them. Like, it's so tough to be intimidating when you look like this. They got to overcompensate. They are overcompensating. That's exactly mm-hmm. what they're doing. Uh, so to wrap up for Palace's cat, so the IUCN technically classifies them as least concern oh. since 2020, and that is because they have a huge range. Like, remember I mentioned, like, they're all from Russia to India. They're all over Central Asia. But the thing is, their population is kind of in pockets because they're sort of separated from each other. Mm-hmm. And individual like populations of them are still listed as endangered in individual countries. Mm. So like China lists them as endangered. Okay. So like within the individual countries, they have different conservation statuses. Right, yeah. um, but IUCN says least concern, but that doesn't mean necessarily that they're doing fantastic. Um, so similar to the Saiga from a few episodes ago, their biggest threat is habitat loss and fragmentation. Uh, the steppes and the grasslands throughout their range are um, sort of being steadily converted into agriculture and mining developments. So this cuts off their populations from each other mm-hmm. and uh, makes them difficult to find each other. I wish I had some action items here. I really don't because all the action items I could find were just like educate yourself, like learn what they are, basically. So congratulations. Mission accomplished. You did it. <laughs> you know what they are. If you find yourself with the opportunity to convert Asian don't do, steps into agriculture, just don't. Don't do a mining. <laughs> <laughs> don't do any mines. Just play Minecraft instead. <laughs> That's all I got for you. You know, we're talking a lot about video games this episode. <laughs> I know. We got it on the brain. We can't help it. That's who we are. <laughs> it's ingrained. It's relatable for the youth, Christian. You're right. That is it for the palace cat. Thanks, baby. You're welcome. Let's take a quick break to hear from our friends on the Max Fun Network, and then we'll get to your animal. Okay. Hi, it's me, this other podcast. And what podcast is that, Christian? <laughs> Just curious, which one is that? Triple mm? Saw. Uh-huh. <laughs> Triple Saw. Manners. Triple Saw Manners. <laughs> we'll leave that in. <laughs> This week, the greatest discovery becomes Greatest Trek. That's because Greatest Trek is for way more than just discovery. We're the hit show on Maximum Fun that covers all the new Star Trek shows. Lower Decks, Strange New Worlds, Picard, Prodigy, Discovery, and any other Star Trek show Paramount throws at us. Come check it out for our funny and formative recaps of all the new stuff this Star Trek industrial complex churns out. It's in your podcatcher every Tuesday. Subscribe to Greatest Trek... It's a new Star Trek podcast from the makers of The Greatest Generation. Hey there, it's Annabelle Gerwich. And I'm Laura House. We host Tiny Victories, the 15-minute podcast that's about the little things. Getting into the tiny victory frame of mind is about recognizing minor accomplishments and fleeting joys. 
Isn't it a wonderful day when the first password you try actually works? When it's freezing cold outside and toasty as all get out in my shower, my tiny victory is that I turn off the water and get on with my day. We can't change this big dumb world, but we can celebrate the tiny wins. So join us on Maximum Fun or wherever you listen to podcasts. Let's get tiny! All right, darling, let's hear it. What animal are we hearing about from you today? This week I'm bringing the beloved kiwi. I'm so excited for this. Me too. It has been a long time coming. It has. First of all, this animal was submitted by Lisa Doyle. So the kiwi is actually referring to a couple different species, not just one. The genus is Apteryx. That's a cool name. I'm hoping I'm pronouncing that right. So some of the info I'm talking about might be generally applicable to the kiwis, but some of it might also be species specific. Sure. I'm getting my information from the New Zealand Department of Conservation, as well as the Smithsonian's National Zoo and Conservation Biology Institute, and of course, Animal Diversity Web found at animaldiversity.org. Excellent. As well as star-studded. another source that I will mention <gasps> when I get to it. It's a surprise tool. It'll help <laughs> us later. So basic information for the kiwi for those unfamiliar. Kiwis are small, flightless birds. They have a brownish coloring with a long, thin bill or beak that curves downward. It's adorable. Yes. Uh, <laughs> a little bit like an ibis. It's funny you mention that. Oh. <laughs> I won't give anything away. Yeah. I, I, I don't have anything to give away. I don't have any more information about that. <laughs> a little fun thing okay. a little bit later. Okay. But in terms of size... Uh, they're, they range from 2.4 to 3.3 kilograms, which is 5 to 7 pounds, and 44 to 55 centimeters, or 17 to 22 inches. So this is well within the magnitude of a chicken. <gasps> they're back! <laughs> the chicken scale is returning! Yes. <laughs> now again, some of the species are larger than others, so you know this is just a general idea of, of their size. So here's the thing. Kiwis are way, way bigger than I've always thought they were. Mm-hmm. I think I like learned what a kiwi was from a photo of one when I was a kid. Right. And it was never in any sort of context that I had a sense of scale for how big they were. Mm-hmm. And the only frame of reference I had for them was the kiwi fruit. Yes. Which is palm size. It fits in the palm of your hand. Right. And little kid brain applied those two things together (laughs) and assumed the kiwi bird would be about the size of the kiwi fruit before you would be able to hold it in your hand. (laughs) Teeny tiny. Teeny tiny little bird. Yeah, I know. And that was something that just an idea that formed in my little kid brain and was never questioned (laughs) until like a year ago. And I saw a picture of somebody holding a kiwi. Right. And it just completely melted my brain. (laughs) I had a huge did not compute moment. Right. So this is a good time to talk about the name. So the bird name came first, and the name Kiwi comes from the sound that they make, specifically the males. Aww. Yes. That's cute. And then uh, in the late 19th, early 20th century, people from New Zealand started to be referred to as Kiwis. Mm. And, you know, it's not derogatory. No, it's like a, it's, yeah. It's like a term of endearment, and yeah. it's actually, you know used by people from new zealand (laughs) yeah i I know lots of people from new zealand that call themselves kiwis yes now the fruit was previously called a chinese gooseberry Mm. 
I won't dig too far into that because I don't think it's technically a gooseberry also, but there I have was, no idea what a gooseberry is. There was a rebranding. <laughs> 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 it's another one of those uh, freedom fries type oh, deals. Oh, <laughs> So in the Cold War time, they didn't want to sell them as Chinese gooseberries anymore. Oh, my God. So they started calling them kiwi fruits. Oh, Lord. <laughs> Jeez. Now, they are grown in New Zealand as well as oh. other places, but they're not native to New Zealand. Oh, yeah. okay. Well. Yeah. That's how strange. Why why pick that to call them? I don't remember the details. Though. Okay. Well, probably not important then, yeah. but I do wonder do when people refer to themselves as kiwis, is that a reference to the bird or is that like a does the word mean something else? So, the usage of being of referring to people as kiwis came mm-hmm. from because the use of the kiwi bird for I guess icons that represent New Zealand. Oh, okay, like a national emblem. Um I think it was it was during World War One that it really picked up mm. because of a, a brand of shoe shine. Oh, that used the kiwi. Wow. Yeah, and then it started being used more and more on, on the New Zealand side of things um, to like to be like a national symbol. As far as national symbols go, it's a really good one. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> it, prior, the only one I think was a fern of some sort, which is still um, used today. Yeah, sure. Yeah, that's cool too. Yeah. As you probably have gathered so far, they are endemic to New Zealand. Love it. Meaning not only that they're found in New Zealand, but they're only found in New Zealand. Can't get them anywhere else. Yes. In terms of evolutionary relatives, it's a little bit higher than family, but they are part of the family of ratites. Love it. Yes. My, so My babies. Yeah, we've talked about these a couple times now. So mm-hmm. these are the ostriches, the cassowaries, the emus. Mm-hmm. Leggy boys. Yes. So... Flightless birds, mm-hmm. terrestrial flightless birds. Now, where the kiwi differs from those other ones is that all the other ratites are fairly big. Yeah. <laughs> They're real big. People sizing up. Yeah, this is the kind of the little, the little cousin. Right. So jumping right into our first category of effectiveness, I'm giving a 9 out of 10. Very good. For the kiwi. I struggled with this a little bit. Really? <laughs> the history of New Zealand is very interesting in of itself mm-hmm. because it was once part of a larger continent mm-hmm. a long time ago. And then Polynesian indigenous peoples found their way to New Zealand not that long ago in historical like terms. Sure. So, you know, we're talking like 700 to 1,000 years ago. That's still a long time ago. Yeah, yeah. And then, you know, later European colonizers showed up to New Zealand. Mm-hmm. So I guess my point is they're very well suited for what should be in New Zealand, Mm. (laughs) but not what is currently in New Zealand. Got it. Okay. (laughs) Sure. Yes. And here's why. So first off, flightless. Sure. Um, That's the trade-off for this kind of bird. So they have underdeveloped wings and chest muscles, and they actually don't have a sternum. Oh, really? Yeah, which is a chest bone. Oh, don't need it. Throw it out. It does not spark joy. So that plays a big part in flapping wings for the purpose of flight. That is an important part of flying, (laughs) yeah. So if you're not flying, that's not really needed anymore. They have strong legs. They can run very fast. You'll notice that they're pretty beefy. They're very, you know, like the other ratites in that that way. They do have those uh, jacked legs. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. They have an impressive longevity. Really? So again, we're, you know, we're talking about a couple different species, but it ranges from 25 to 50 years. For a little guy? Yeah. Interesting. You don't, <laughs> I feel like you don't typically see little animals living that long. Right. That, that, that caught me by surprise. Yeah. Wow. So I mentioned the no sternum piece. So that kind of plays into the, they are vulnerable to crushing injuries. 
So this is a big problem because one of the things that were introduced to New Zealand are dogs. Uh-oh. Yes. Oh, and they can't fly away from a dog. Right. Oh. So this New Zealand has has had a long history of problems of introduced species. Right. There were there are no native land mammals in New Zealand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember hearing about this. Yes. It's just like they have bats. Yeah, they have bats and seals and whales and dolphins. Oh, but on land it's fair game. Right. And even then I think I read somewhere that the bats in New Zealand are comfortable just kind of crawling on the ground. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like nothing here can uh, mess with me. Right. Well, but you know. So that also meant no land predators. Sure. Uh mammal predators at least because mm-hmm. they, they they have native bird predators. I think we we talked about the the kia. Kia, yeah. And the tuatara, but the tuatara I think is not it's not something that would be eating a kiwi. It might go after eggs and young. Oh, but, sure. So yeah, dogs were introduced. Mm. Uh, you know, not not anything that they've are used to or developed alongside to have protections against. So and they're very uh what's the word? Likeable for dogs. <laughs> oh, they do kind of look like a big old tennis ball, don't they? It's a smell thing. I oh, think. really? Yeah. Are they stinky? So, yeah. So oh. I think. <laughs> so I think even smaller dogs, if they get a hold of them, there's a huge potential for injury there, right? Because they, they're so susceptible to crushing injuries, which is not something that they've had to deal with, right? Historically, yeah. But they have a good sense of smell to find their prey. You got it with a nose like that. Mm-hmm. So what they're doing is they're they're looking for invertebrates and sometimes small vertebrates mm. and like uh, roots and berries and that kind of thing. So you mentioned ibis. Watching videos of these things, trying to get an idea of what they what they look like, how they move. I noticed they kind of look like an ibis. Yeah, yeah, we, yeah. We, we have you know some species of ibis where we live everywhere. They're par- all over the place. Particularly the bill. Yeah, yeah, yeah. right. And I thought. Those look similar. I wonder if they have a similar, you know, design or purpose. Mm-hmm. And turns out they do. Wow. I'm kind of proud of myself for, for digging into this because this is not something I came across otherwise. Oh, yeah. look at you. <laughs> this is called probe foraging. Probe foraging. Yes. Okay. And they have something called a bill tip organ. So on the tip of their bills, they have what are, the, what are called mechanoreceptors. And they have two kinds. So one is the Grandry corpuscles, which can, I guess, sense velocity. And also the Herbst corpuscles, which can measure pressure. Okay. Yeah. So they can feel how fast their bill is moving? They're feeling movement in the the ground. Oh, I see, I see. So just like the Ibis, you'll see these things kind of poking at the ground. Mm Mm-hmm. So they're smelling for things, but they're also feeling for things moving around. Wow. Yeah. So they're like sticking their beak or bill. Bill is how I saw it. Um, so they're sticking their bill in the dirt and then just kind of like using that as like a sensor to right. like detect nearby critters. So so there are five clades of birds that have high concentrations of those mechanoreceptors. And those are waterfowl, parrots, shorebirds, ibises and spoonbills, and kiwis. Okay, that makes sense. These are all animals that I associate with like using their bill to forage, not necessarily right. like hunting. Right. So in ibises and spoonbills and kiwis, those receptors are clustered into pits um, within the bones at the tip of the bill. So like I mentioned, you know, those are designed to probe for invertebrates and small vertebrates and dirt. 
And in the case of spoonbills and water. Spoonbills are great at that. Yeah. Yeah, very sensitive bills. So that's that's another thing they're doing when they're like doing that spooning of the water is they're, they're, they're sensing movement. Yeah, it's like a dabbling where mm-hmm. they're like, it's cool. They kind of like swish the bill from side to right. side. But that's interesting that the kiwi has it too because the kiwi is so far removed yes. from them. So they're only distantly related. Very distant. So... This is another example of convergent evolution. Love to see it. <laughs> Love when that happens. Yeah. The information I'm getting about these mechanoreceptors is from an article titled The Anatomy of the Bill Tip of Kiwi and Associated Somatosensory Regions of the Brain Comparisons with Shorebirds by Cunningham, Corfield, Iwaniuk, Castro, and Ali. And that was from a 2013 article. I just wanted to kind of read the last sentence of the abstract. Okay, let's hear it. We suggest that similarities between kiwi and scolopacid bill tip organs and associated somatosensory brain regions are likely a result of similar ecological selective pressures with interspecific variations reflecting finger scale niche differentiation. That was a lot of big words. Yeah. That was a lot of very fancy, sciencey words. So it's basically saying, um, the well, the scolopacid is the shorebirds. That the, that they're, the, Got it. Yeah. Okay. So think sandpipers. Oh, yeah. Yeah, those kinds of birds. I love them. <laughs> so again, you know, they're, they're searching for things in the sand in that case. Yeah. So, you know, it's saying they have similarities not because they share a common ancestor that had that trait, but it's because, you know, they were being selected for for similar reasons. Mm -hmm. But then they have kind of niche applications based on what specifically they're experiencing. So for shorebirds, it's because of, you know, sand on beaches. And then in Kiwi's cases, it's because of like loose dirt. Wow. Really interesting. Very interesting. (laughs) Good find. Good job. So the, the the nose is designed to keep out dirt with a valve behind the nostrils. Um, and if you look at them, they, their, their nostrils are actually more located towards the tip of the bill, which mm. in most birds is closer to the face. But if they're not doing a lot of waiting, because I associate the, the nostrils being close to the face as being really helpful if you're spending a lot of time with your bill in the water. Because if, like for the spoon bill, their nostrils are really close to their face because the tip of their bill is usually underwater. Right. So it lets them breathe while their bill is submerged. Right. But if they're not if they don't need to do that, it doesn't matter. Well, and the, the advantage of it being close to the tip of the bill, make, making it close to the ground, is that they're also able to smell while they're oh, doing sure, this. Sure, sure. So they're using a combination of uh, you know sensing movement and also smelling. Oh yeah. Yeah. Oh, so they're really really getting a lot of input there. Yes. That's cool. Uh, so they are small. We talked about they're the smallest ratite. Um, however, they are small, but they have one large egg. Oh my god. <laughs> I hadn't thought of that until you just said that and I know exactly what you're talking about. This is hands down the funniest thing in the universe. <laughs> yeah. Females will lay one relatively large egg at a time. Um so on average it's 15% of the female's body weight. It's like it's massive. <laughs> Have you seen an X-ray of this? <laughs> yeah. It's so funny. So it's like pushing organs around and oh gosh. It looks like her body is just egg. <laughs> she's like she's an egg with a neck sprouting yeah, out of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so that percentage of body weight is even higher than an ostrich's. Mm. So like ostriches have big eggs like in an absolute fashion, but mm-hmm. it's still much smaller relative to the size of the ostrich right Right. she's Um. like (laughs) she's like laying an egg with a fully grown kiwi inside (laughs) um and that that egg weighs around a pound 
to put that in perspective, a jumbo chicken egg is like 15% of that. But here's another interesting about those eggs. The babies do not have an egg tooth. So they, Uh-oh. they have to kick their way to freedom. <gasps> <laughs> I think Finley was trying to do that. <laughs> yeah. When I was pregnant with Finley, I think that's what he was trying to do. Uh-huh. He thought he was a little kiwi. He was trying to kick, kick, kick his way out. Yep. Oh my god, that's so funny! And so I, know I say egg tooth, but because a lot lots of other birds do have what we call an egg tooth, True. that's like a little pointy bit at the end of their beak or bill that lets them get through the eggshell and mm-hmm. then eventually that goes away. But not the kiwis. Oh man, bless them! That's just the <laughs> cutest little thing. Yep. And then, so like I mentioned, you know, they're very susceptible to introduced predators in New Zealand. I talked about dogs already, but there's a bunch of other ones. Mm-hmm. So um, those include ferrets, stoats, and other mustelids. Um, Ferrets were like introduced as pest control, weren't they? All these have so many different stories of on accident or on purpose to try and handle some other animal. Right. Or just to spur a fur. You get a little old lady who's (laughs) swallowed the fly situation. (laughs) It's crazy. Also, possums from Australia. And these things, you know, are causing problems for native animals, but also native flora. Right. So I think um, the, a problem with possums is there's a type of tree in New Zealand that they go crazy for and mm. will pretty much kill. Yeah. And a big problem with invasive species there, like you see in Hawaii also, is that mm. since it's an island, you know, a lot of the species there, if they're threatened, that's it. That's the only ones you have of them. Right. right? You're not going to get like a population from elsewhere that you can like repopulate them with or something Mm. like that it's like that's it so these like island ecosystems are a lot more fragile yeah a lot more susceptible to damage from invasive species yeah so yeah that's wrapping up a nine out of ten for effectiveness i can see why (laughs) because like i said they're really really good at the things that they're supposed to be doing right (laughs) yeah but then you just kind of basically throw a whole wrench in their environment yeah well, that's that's kind of you to be grading them on their rubric yeah. rather than ours. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we, we, I can't fault them for that. No, it's not their fault. In our second category of ingenuity, I'm giving a 7 out of 10. Okay. Something interesting about their incubation of the large egg. So the male and female take turns incubating that egg, but the males are the primary. So much so that the males actually develop a bald spot on their underside. <gasps> that enhances heat transfer from their body into the egg. So those unfamiliar, lots of birds require incubation of their egg, which basically just means providing heat for that egg for the the bird to develop further within the egg. Because if, yeah. if it was left on its own, it wouldn't do that. Right. You know, the, the their cousins, the emus, also the dad sits on the egg. Yeah. But, but for the emus, the dad completely takes over child rearing. Like oh, once okay. the egg is laid, mom pieces out and never sure. sees that egg again. In this case, I think a lot of it has to do because because of how huge that egg is. <laughs> it takes a lot of energy for the female to 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 make it. She would have to be like draped over it with her entire body. <laughs> well, the, the thing is, like after she's done finally, you know, laying this massive thing. Oh my, that poor thing! She needs to go get food to make up for that energy. She loss. needs a day off. <laughs> she needs to go to a spa. Yeah. She needs a, she needs a lot. So you know, dad's picking up the the slack while she's doing that. Good for him. <laughs> Good idea. Uh, they are nocturnal. I, I was spending some time thinking about this. Like, why? <laughs> <laughs> I think what that, are you hiding from? <laughs> I think they're the only nocturnal ratite as well. Oh, interesting. Yeah. 
I mean, like the only, I couldn't find anything definitive. My best guess is to make it harder to be predated by the, I guess, like flighted predators. Sure. Perhaps. Maybe. Yeah. Uh, they do have forms of communication. I mentioned, you know, they are named after the call that they, one of the calls that they can make. And can I get a quick sample of that? Mm-mm. What does that sound like? No, 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 no. Oh, come on. <laughs> this would be an easy one. I heard it's in it the name. Once. I heard it once. One uh, of these days. <laughs> So yeah, and those are all vocal sounds. They're, they're quite varied. I encourage listener to go find some sound bites of that. They won't have to, because I'll drop one right here. <laughs> Perfect. And then to our final category of aesthetics. Full 10 out of 10, not sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I think they're extremely cute. They are extremely cute. They have hair. No, sorry. Hair like feathers. Mm, important <laughs> distinction. Kind of similar like the cassowary like yeah. we talked about. It's like a shaggy looking mm-hmm. sort of, which makes sense because they don't have to fly. Right. It serves a different purpose. Right. So they don't need those like sort of contour feathers that other birds have. Mm-hmm. So they can kind of be a little more loosey-goosey <laughs> with their feathers. They're very cute, um, especially if you find a video of what they look like when they're running. <laughs> is it goofy? <laughs> it is a little goofy. <laughs> Their, their beak is pretty much always close to the ground. Sure. Um, I'm not sure if that's a, a balance thing or not, but... <laughs> Do you think they're like... Well, they wouldn't be top-heavy, right? Like, they wouldn't have to worry about, like, leaning forward and toppling over. No, especially because of the beefy legs. I imagine their center of gravity is pretty balanced. Oh, yeah. I bet they're sturdy fellows. Lisa Doyle, who submitted this, gave a lot of uh, breadcrumbs for me for this Ooh, one in terms good. of what to look into. I, th- I think she implied that the beak is heavy enough to where, you know, they're kind of having to keep it down like that at all times. Uh, but maybe that's more of like a neck strain sort of thing. Right, perhaps. Um, but the way they run is goofy because of the way that their body is. <laughs> <laughs> it kind of reminds me of what it looks like if you had someone with like pajama pants that pulled them up past their arms <laughs> and then started running. <laughs> <laughs> I know exactly what you're talking about. <laughs> well, also, it's a very different posture from most birds, mm-hmm. even other rat heights. Because right. with the other rat heights, you know, their heads are high up and they're getting a good view as they're running. But right. these are like haunched over. And <laughs> you know what I'm imagining? I'm imagining a Naruto run. <laughs> Is it kind of like that? I mean, no, but I do like it. Well, like they're like leaning forward and mm. running, and sure. Give me this. Yes. Naruto <laughs> run. Confirmed. <laughs> so four species are listed as vulnerable with one being near threatened on the IUCN scale. Okay. But however, um, the DOC in New Zealand has them listed from ranging from recovering to nationally critical. And that's using the New Zealand threat classification system, which I guess it makes sense that they have their own classification system for how many animals that have the same kind of problem. Right. (laughs) So in addition to dealing with introduced predators, a lot of times these, the the introduced animals that maybe aren't predators are also out competing for resources. Uh, So, you know, the things they have to deal with in terms of threats, I mean, we've already talked about predation by introduced species, but also, you know, small population sizes and genetic diversity issues with fragmented populations. Mm -hmm. You know, we talked about those kinds of things before. Um, However, there is lots of work going on to help kiwis. 
um, ranging from sanctuaries, uh, similar to what we talked about with the bandicoot, where mm. they have sanctuaries that are designed to keep out predators, but also, you know, hatching eggs in captivity for wild release and many other programs. Uh, so some of the ones listed on the uh, the DOC's website was Save the Kiwi, Save Our Iconic Kiwi, and Operation Nest Egg, if you were looking for organizations mm. to donate money to. They yeah. also provide guidance for people that live in New Zealand, like what, what things you can do personally to help with the kiwi populations mm. one an interesting one i found was you can get kiwi aversion training for your dog what yes like teach your <laughs> dog not to like kiwis i suppose i didn't dig too, dig too deep into it but it seems like there's an initial training and then a yearly recertification <gasps> Oh my god! And then if your dog meets a certain standard, like the, it's a longer period of recertification. Mm. But um, but yeah, they're going pretty hard there. Wow. Yeah. I mean, you know, if you can't do all that, you can just contain your dog. Right. Keep your dog on a leash. Yes. Keep your dog inside or on a leash. Or, yeah. You know, whatever you yeah. can do to make sure your dog's not running. I mean, that goes anywhere, anywhere you live. You yes. Be, if you have yes. a dog, you should keep it. Also. You know, house cats. New Zealand has a ton of other birds that are also threatened. Yeah. Keep your cats inside. Yeah. We've said it before. We'll say it again. Keep <laughs> um, your cats in. Keep an eye out on them on the roadways, especially since they're nocturnal birds. Mm, uh, they probably have a similar problem that we have with opossums. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. What a lovely bird. Mm-hmm. I was very smitten by this one. I can tell. <laughs> <laughs> what a great one. And yeah. thank you to Lisa for requesting it. For sure. We've had our eye on this one for a while. It was really nice to get to finally talk about them. Mm-hmm. Well, here, I thought mine was so good, and then you upstaged me. <laughs> I was so proud of my kitty cat. This was a, a very charismatic pairing that we did today. Yeah, for sure. Some some crowd pleasers. Gosh, do I have a strong, d- renewed desire to go to New Zealand. I know. I know you want to go. <laughs> we, we will. Just find a travel agency that specializes in... Um, eco tours and Lord of the Rings. <laughs> There's probably significant overlap between people who want to do those two exact things. Yes. Well, I think we have quite a few people who listen from New Zealand. So uh, if you're listening and you have any Kiwi stories, mm-hmm. I'd love to hear them. That reminds me. So, you know, Kiwis hold a, an especially important cultural place in New Zealand, but particularly the Maori people because of, uh, you know, that relationship pre existed european introduction right yeah i could definitely see it that's a great one to have i would love to see one someday yes so anybody listening if you have a cool kiwi story please send them in i would love please to hear it. please 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 i will read it on the show <laughs> guaranteed it's a great way to get a shout out mm-hmm. on the on the podcast is to send in a story though my understanding is you know a lot of people even people that live in new zealand might go a long time or if ever without seeing kiwis because they are nocturnal so um mm. uh, and they're kind of shy that's me with skunks <laughs> i've never seen one yeah i mean i've seen one in like you know i saw one in like a nature center that we were at one time where they had like a skunk like mm. a captive one i've never seen these stupid things i smell them all the time and i never <laughs> get to see them they're so elusive but at least there's a positive spin to never coming in face to face with a skunk in the wild yeah. <laughs> but that's the thing i smell them sure which is the part that you don't want to do. I, only, you want to see them, which is they're cute. I only get the bad part, which is smelling them. That's only like a fraction of the potential bad part, though. That's <laughs> true. The worst is being sprayed with that smell. Yeah, true. Uh, but I think it would be worth no, it. No, I'm telling you right now, it's not. <laughs> <laughs> For the story. <laughs> I would have the 
experience in the story. I'm going to remind you of this one day. Plus, also, we know that super <laughs> secret recipe to the like special chemical wash you can use to get the smell out. Do we? Well, I have it on an episode we did in the past. <laughs> I recited it. You're going to come home one day. He's like, hey, Christian. Yeah. Can you pull up that one episode? No reason. <laughs> can you pull up our skunk episode? Also, if you come in here, please plug your nose and... <laughs> Don't smell anything for a while. <laughs> Thanks, babe. That was a great animal. Thanks. Lovely segment. And thank you, dear listener, for spending this time with us today. I hope you enjoyed it. We really enjoyed it. We enjoyed having you here with us. Mm-hmm. Um, if you liked what you heard today, it would mean a lot to us if you left us a good review on your podcatcher, like Apple Podcasts or Podchaser or wherever you're listening. Just... Drop us a good review. That would mean a lot to us. Or also, like, tell a friend. Send someone a message saying, hey, did you know that kiwis have convergent evolution with ibises? And yeah. Similar mechanoreceptors in their bills? Like, go info dump at somebody about the stuff <laughs> that you learned on our podcast today. And let a friend know that you like us so that more folks can join our big happy family. Mm. And if you want to hang out with us, we're on social media. We're on, we have a really cool Facebook group. We're active on Twitter or on Instagram. We have a really hop in discord where everyone in there is super nice and fun to talk to. Really enjoy that. At least all that will be in the episode description. Uh, we'd like to thank maximum fun for having us on the network alongside their other amazing shows. Um, go check those out over at maximumfun.org. If you like our show and want us to continue making it, you can support us at MaximumFun.org. And thank you, Louis Zong, for our music, which I've gotten a lot of compliments on, by the way. That's awesome. Which is like, I know I'm not the one to be receiving those compliments because I did not make (laughs) the music, but I will take them anyway. You should let Zui... Oh my gosh, I called him Zui. (laughs) (laughs) Louis Zong know about those. I'm I'm sure he knows. He's a busy guy. (laughs) (laughs) It's a wonder he replied to me the first time. (laughs) I don't know if I can push my luck with further emails. (laughs) Y'all leave this man alone. (laughs) Thanks, everybody. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Maximumfun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.